This Parsha podcast is dedicated by my friend Danny Kaplan, spelled correctly with a C, I've been told. Danny and family are dedicating this Parsha podcast in honor of Aaron Kaplan, whose bar mitzvah Parsha is this week. So we wish him a hearty happy birthday. And also, in loving memory and Lila Nishmas, Yonabat Esther, may her soul be elevated in heaven. I am speaking to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Podcast. I'm your lucky host, Yaakov Walby. The email just says rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Parsha's MR is a very full Parsha. We have a staggering 56 mitzvos. Most of them are relating to the Kohanim. It starts off with contact with the dead. The high priest cannot come into contact with any dead, aside from a mace mitzvah, an unattended corpse. An ordinary Kohen can come into contact with seven relatives. We're told how to properly mourn. You cannot inflict wounds when you are mourning over the dead. You can rip out your head here or your beard here or make gashes or wounds in your skin. We're told who the Kohanim are allowed to marry, the requirement that they must be sanctified, the love of a daughter of a Kohen who commits adultery, a blemished Kohen, an impure Kohen. What about an ordinary Israelite? They're not allowed to eat sacrificial foods if the sacrifice is blemished, etc. And the Parsha ends with the festivals. This is one of the four places in the Torah that we go through all the festivals. And then we have an assortment of laws and a very interesting narrative. At the end of the Parsha, we talk about the menorah lighting. That also is mentioned a few times in the Torah. There is a description of the showbread, the breads that are placed upon the table each week. And finally, we have the story of the blasphemer. This is the first ever instance of a Jewish court executing someone. We have this blasphemer, and he blasphemes, or blasphemes, I don't want to mispronounce it. I think it's blasphemes. He blasphemes. And he is executed. Now, two years ago, 5781, of course, that was sent out again this week, we spoke about the blasphemer, blasphemer. I want to speak about it today from a different angle. So what happened? At the end of the parish, we're told there was a man. And we're given his background in detail. And he commits a grievous crime. He blasphemes, blasphemes. And he was executed. And there was a bit of uncertainty as to what to do with him. And Moshe consults with God. But God tells Moshe he must be executed, which he is. This is the first of two instances of capital punishment in the Torah. The second being the Mekoshesh, the twig gatherer, who we read about in the book of Numbers. Now, who is this blasphemer? We're not told his name, but we're told a lot about him. We're given his pedigree. The verse tells us, chapter 24, verse 10, he was the son of an Israelite woman. And the son of an Egyptian man. And he exited amidst the nation, and there was a conflict, a fight of sorts in the camp. And then he goes on and he blasphemes. So we have 
some description here. He's the son of a Jewish woman. Her name we discover later on is Shlomis Bas Divri. Shlomis, the daughter of Divri from the tribe of Dan. And his father is an Egyptian man. So he is the product of a mixed union. Now Rashi tells us this is not any ordinary Egyptian man. This is the same Egyptian that Moshe killed. This is on day one of Moshe's coming of age narrative, the beginning of the book of Exodus. Moshe, of course, is raised in the palace as the adopted son of Pharaoh, or Pharaoh's daughter, really. And when he grows up, he goes out and he witnesses and he sees and he empathizes and he suffers alongside his brethren. And it tells us that he encounters an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his fellow. And he looks to the right and he looks to the left and he sees that there's no one. And he strikes the Egyptian and he buries him in the sand. That Egyptian is the father of this blasphemer. Now the next day, he goes out again and this time he sees another conflict. He sees two Hebrews, two Israelites are fighting. And he tells the one who was the aggressor, wicked one, why do you strike your fellow? And he responds, and he says, what, you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And the term that he uses, are, are you saying that you're going to kill me? And Rashi tells us that Moshe killed the Egyptian with words. He said he verbally deployed the name of God, and he used that to kill the Egyptian. And now Moshe is intervening in this scuffle between these two Hebrews and they go turn him in. And this act, that Moshe killed the Egyptian, condemned Moshe. They wanted to kill him. And ultimately he fled to Midian. And that's where his story continued. This is chapter two of, of the book of Exodus. Now, this Egyptian man on day one of Moshe's coming to age narrative, this is the father of the blasphemer. Now, why was he striking the Hebrew man? So we're given in the sources, the Midrash, Rashi gives us some of this as well. We're given a lot of backstory here. The Hebrew man, who the Egyptian man was striking and Moshe prevented him from striking, he was the husband of the mother of the blasphemer. So there's a little bit of a love triangle here. We have a Jewish man married to a Jewish woman. According to the Midrash, the Jewish man is Dathan, that uh, rabble rouser, that malcontent. So, so Dathan is married to Shlomis Bastivri from the tribe of Dan. And this Egyptian, he committed adultery with Shlomis Bastivri, with the mother of the blasphemer. And that product of that union is the blasphemer of Araparsha. Now, the Midrash gives us some context. In Egypt, they had Jewish guards overseeing the Jewish slaves, the slave labor, and they had Egyptian taskmasters who were in charge of the, the Jewish guards. So every Jewish guard had 10 slaves that they were responsible for. And every 10 Jewish guards, there was one taskmaster. And it tells us that the taskmasters would come and rouse the Jews, the Jewish guards, every morning at daybreak. And one time, this Egyptian taskmaster, he went to wake up to rouse the Jewish guard, Dathan, according to the Midrash. And he noticed his wife, and she was really attractive. And one day when he roused the husband, he snuck into the house, 
and he impersonated her husband, and they slept together, her unwittingly, and as a result of that, she became pregnant, and the product of that, the progeny of that, is the blasphemer. Now, as an aside, according to this Midrash, the mother of the blasphemer is completely innocent. You know, she thought it was her husband. The Egyptian impersonated her husband. Rashi in our Parsha, he seems to pin some of the blame on her. Rashi says her name wasn't Shlomis and her father's name was not Divri. She's only called that to highlight her quality or her flaw of being overly flirtatious with strangers. The word Shlomis is from the word Shalom, which means, means hi, how are you? And she was always chit-chatting. She was always speaking to people. Hi, how you doing? What's going on? And divri, the word divri, the word davar or dibur means words. And she's always speaking, always chatting, even with people that are not her husband. And she she's overly friendly. So it's an interesting question here exactly how culpable is this Jewish woman in the events that led to her becoming pregnant from the Egyptian man. But regardless, what happened, according to the Midrash, is that the husband of Shlomus, that's Dathan, at least, according to the Midrash, he comes back and he finds the Egyptian and he discovers what happened. And now there's a conflict here. The Egyptian realizes that the Jewish husband of the woman that he just raped is a problem. So he sent him, he was formerly a guard, he sent him back into slave labor and tried to kill him. And that's when Moshe showed up. Moshe showed up as the Egyptian man who had raped this Jewish woman, as he's about to strike and kill the husband of the woman he violated. And Moshe intervened, and he said some, some words, he invoked the name of God, and he killed the Egyptian. But that incident resulted in the conception of a child. And that child, the son of Shlomis Basdivri, and the Egyptian taskmaster, he is the individual at the end of our Parsha who blasphemes. He's the villain at the end of the Parsha who gets executed. Now, interestingly, Rashi tells us that this child, the blasphemer, he's not a Jew. You know, today we have a simple principle. If someone's mother is a Jew, then halakhically, regardless of who the father is, the child is a Jew as well. Now, Rashi, based upon a Midrash, tells us something really interesting. This is in verse 10. Rashi says that he converted. Now, why would he need to convert if his mother is a Jew? Who cares about the father? So the commentaries here tell us something interesting. This is another aside, but we're reading a lot about the background of the blasphemer, so it's noteworthy. The commentaries tell us that matrilineal descent meaning that if the mother is Jewish, then the son or the child or the daughter, any children that she bears are Jewish as well. That was only after Sinai. But before Sinai, the rules were different. The status of the child would follow the dad. And therefore, this blasphemer was not even Jewish. And that's why he had to convert. So it's interesting, we just discovered another little bit of information about this blasphemer. You know, you recall 
that 80% of the biological Jews did not want to leave Egypt. And here we have someone who is not halakhically Jewish, but he opts in, he chooses to convert. But ultimately, he becomes the blasphemer and is executed. Now, there's another thing here, another little bit of information about the background of the blasphemer. The father of the blasphemer's mother, she's called Shlomit Bas Divri. The word Divri is the same Hebraic root as the word Dever. Dever was one of the plagues in Egypt. There was dam, blood, and then frauds, and then lice, and then animals, wild animals, and then dever, pestilence. The animals of Egypt died. And the Midrash tells us something amazing. Rashi says that divri means words. She was overly chatty. Says the Midrash something else. She brought about dever, pestilence, upon her son. The plague of pestilence, where the animals of the Egyptians died, that affected this blasphemer. Now, what does that mean? So, if you look at the plague, the fifth plague in Egypt, the verse tells us, chapter 9, verse 6, that all the livestock of the Egyptians died. However, from the livestock of the Jews, there wasn't even a single death. It was a completely lopsided, one-sided affair. The plague affected only the Egyptian animals and not the Jewish animals. And then verse 7 tells us that Pharaoh sent inspectors. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was almost no animal casualties amongst the Jews, but there was there was one. And that's why Pharaoh said, oh, it must be just, you know, just worked out like that. But you see, the, the Jews also lost some animals. So it's interesting. The verse says that not a single Jewish animal died. And the next verse says, Pharaoh sent inspectors, and they found that there was one instance of a Jewish animal that died. So there's a bit of a misunderstanding here. The verse testifies, verse 6 of chapter 9 of the book of Exodus, that not a single Jewish animal died. And the following verse tells us the Pharaoh found that one, in fact, did. So what happens? Says the Midrash, the blasphemer's animal died. Given that he was halakhically deemed an Egyptian, he was subject to the plagues. Now, Pharaoh didn't know his actual parentage. He was born to a Jewish woman. And the fact that there was a mixed Union that was exceedingly rare. In fact, Rashi tells us, it's also Midrash, that there was only one such child amongst the whole duration of the Jews in Egypt. It was just the blasphemer. That's it. Rashi to verse 11 tells us that the reason why his mother is identified by name is because she was the lone exception to this rule. So Pharaoh had no idea that the blasphemer was actually in the eyes of God an Egyptian. And therefore, when he discovered that the animal of the blasphemer died, he had sufficient grounds to deny the miraculous nature of the plague, and he hardened his heart and did not send the Jews free.
So we're given a complete background here of this blasphemer. It's interesting, we're not told his name, but we're given everything we need to know, or a lot about what we need to know about him. His biological father, that's the Egyptian that Moshe killed with the special name of God. His mother is Shlomis. And opinions differ exactly as to how culpable she was in the incident. The mother's husband, the, the presumed adopted father, you would imagine, that's the notorious Dathan. And in Egypt, his animal died by the plague of pestilence. And then when the exodus happened, he felt enough of an affinity to his mother's nation that he joined the Jews in the exodus and he converted. And now, in our Parsha, he commits blasphemy and he is the first person who was executed by a Jewish court. Now, what were the circumstances that led to this? So Rashi tells us that given his mixed pedigree, he had a problem that no one wanted to allow him to encamp with them. He came and went to the tribe of Dan. The reason why his mother, Shlomis Bazdervi, to the tribe of Dan. She was part of the tribe of Dan. And he says, well, my father's an Egyptian, but my mother, she is a daughter of the tribe of Dan. Maybe I can pitch my tent over there. And the Danites weren't thrilled to see him. What are you doing here? He says, well, I'm from the tribe of Dan. They say, no, you're not. The appointment of people to the tribes follows the father. So there was a dispute as to whether or not he had rights to be encamped with the tribe of Dan. And they went to court. And Moshe ruled that his claim to encamp with the tribe of Dan is meritless. And he left the court and he was angry and he stood up and he blasphemed and he was executed. This blaspheme is a very interesting story arc. On one hand, he does display a certain tenacious commitment to join the nation. He converts. And there's no questioning the legitimacy of his conversion and his sincerity. And notwithstanding the fact that he lost his animal during the plague of pestilence, he wanted to convert to join the nation. He was better than 80% of the Jews who were more Egyptian than Jewish. And when he lost his property, he was okay. But when he was alienated, when he was socially ostracized, then he found no purpose in life and he blasphemed. And he did it in front of witnesses. And they warned him ahead of time. And he accepted the warning. He knew the consequences, all the requirements to actually be executed in a Jewish court were met, and he was executed. Now, we're given a lot of background information about the blasphemer. And this story takes up a very large part of our parsha. You know, what's the reason why we have to have all this background? I, I, I would imagine it's noteworthy to be told that there was an instance of someone being executed over the course of the 40 years in the wilderness. But why do I need to know everything about him and the pedigree and what triggered his meltdown? 
So some of the commentaries address these questions. So the Das Zikainim notes that the reason why he blasphemed, it's because of his Egyptian parentage. This is the way of the Egyptians. Pharaoh, when Pharaoh is introduced to the notion of God, he says, who's God? I don't know God. That was the quality of the Egyptians. And that filtered through to the blasphemer. He also points out that there's an interesting parallel between the method by which Moshe killed the Egyptian, the biological father of the blasphemer, and the blasphemy of his son. There's a symmetry here. The biological father is killed with the special name of God, and he blasphemed with the special name as well. There is a, there is a principle here that there's a name of God that can be used with deadly effect. We mentioned this in the past. The Kohen Gadol is not allowed to marry a widow. This is our parasha. He's only allowed to marry a virgin who was never previously married. Why not? What's wrong with a woman who, you know, her husband died? She's not to be blamed for that. So one of the commentaries says something amazing. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, had special superpowers including knowing the exact enunciation of the special name of God and being in the position to deploy it with deadly effect on Yom Kippur. What if he fancied a certain woman? She just happens to be married. There is a concern that he would perhaps abuse his power and his position to say the name of God and thereby kill the husband of the woman that he desires and marry the widow. And therefore, to prevent that, or certainly to prevent the possibility of anyone claiming that he deliberately killed the husband with the special name of God, he is barred from marrying any widow. Really interesting. But let's drill down a little bit deeper here. What is going on? What is the psyche of this blasphemer. What is he thinking? What is his calculus? If you measure what he did, it doesn't exactly add up. The cause and effect don't seem to be naturally correlated. He blasphemed. Why did he blaspheme? Because of an unrelated court case regarding property rights, in effect. Where is he entitled to encamp? And where is it prohibited for him to encamp? What does that have to do with him blaspheming? It's not immediately evident. I want to suggest perhaps an approach to understanding this story may be taking away a very valuable lesson. Now let's start with a different part of the Parsha. In the beginning of the parish, we're told that Kohanim, but really this applies to everyone, as Rashi tells us, when a relative dies and the surviving relative is distraught, they are not allowed to inflict any self-harm. They cannot rip out their hair. They cannot rip out their beard. They cannot inflict any wounds on their skin. This is a prohibition in the Torah. You are not allowed to self-inflict a wound 
due to the agony, the misery, the pain, the suffering of a recently departed loved one. Now, why would someone want to do this in the first place? You know, why, why is there a need to warn someone against this? What is the logic of even wanting to pull out your own hair? Why would a response to the pain of a deceased relative, why would a response be to inflict further pain? doesn't make any sense. I think that there's something very deep here. Momentum is very powerful. When something is bad, when something is painful, we have an inborn instinct that's completely illogical, but we have an instinct to continue along that trend. There is a perverse way to respond to pain any sort of disappointment or misfortune, any bad thing, and just to say, oh, I, I give up. Forget about it. Who needs all of this? What difference does it make? I'm out of here. I'm giving up. Something bad that happens to a person, it triggers a feeling, an instinct to just drop everything. If you lose one thing, if you experience pain in one area, you may feel compelled, an instinct, a drive, an urge to lose something else and to get pain in another area as well. And I suspect that the theory behind it is that momentum is so powerful, it just drags everything with it, regardless of whether or not it makes sense. And the person themselves may feel an illogical urge to perpetuate it. And it could be counterproductive, it could be painful, it could be damaging, it doesn't matter. The urge for continuity along a certain trend line is such that when something bad happens, you enter into this vortex, into this spiral, you just feel compelled to exacerbate it, to continue. It's like a, like a snowball effect. The momentum reinforces itself and it gets stronger and more powerful and it begins to operate like a runaway train. Someone who loses a family member, God forbid, they're sad, they're depressed, they're distraught, they're experiencing deep pain. And there is a perverse impulse to deliberately cause more pain to themselves, to just give up on trying to improve things. We ordinarily have an instinct of self-preservation, of trying to seek pleasure, not pain, trying to advance our cause in life. And there is a way to have an instinct to self-sabotage, to just change that normal instinct. That's the instinct that the Torah is warning us against. You are not allowed to self-flagellate in mourning. You are so sad about what happened and you may feel a desire to inflict further pain, that is prohibited. But perhaps this instinct, this urge, is what prompted the blasphemer to blaspheme. This illegitimate child, of course, not due to any fault of his own, he had a legitimate gripe. 
He was willing to join the nation and not withstanding the fact that he suffered and he was punished as an Egyptian. And you would imagine he didn't have a great standing in society even before. But he had some Danite ancestry. His mother was from the tribe of Dan. And he wanted to encamp with his fellow Danite relatives. After all, where is he supposed to go? That's the tribe that he has most connection with. And they said no. And he took his case to court. And Moshe ruled that he's not entitled to be there. And he was angry. And he was sad. And he felt alone. And he was in pain. And he felt aggrieved. And it was just the deck was stacked against him. And what did he do? He continued along that path. And he chose to exacerbate a bad situation. He made it way worse. And when he left the court, he blasphemed. If I cannot be with the Danites, I'm out. If I cannot have the thing that I want, I'll have nothing. He did not know how to properly process the disappointment, the misfortune, the loss that he had. It totally disoriented him. It destabilized him. And he devolved. He unraveled. And he made this terrible and fatal decision to blaspheme, and he was executed. There was a much better way to handle his disappointment with God. We have a precedent for this. Chapter 18 of the book of Genesis, there is an extended narrative of Abraham disagreeing with God. God says, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham launches into this intercession. Well, maybe if there's 50, could we, could we change it? What if there's 45? What if there's 40, 30, 20, 10? God is going to destroy the city. And Abraham doesn't agree, doesn't like it. Seems to argue with the ruling of God. In a weird way, almost like the blasphemer. But there is a very big difference between Abraham and how he processed his disappointment and the blasphemer. The final words of chapter 18 of Genesis, Avraham shav limkomo. Abraham returned to his place. Abraham maintained his previous standing. He accepted the ruling. He did not allow it to threaten his standing. He was able to restore the way things were previously. The blasphemer did not return to his place. He was a convert. He was part of the nation. He was accepted as a Jew. Not as a Danite, but as a Jew. He did not return to that place. He yielded to this terrible instinct to give up on everything. And he exacerbated a bad situation by making it 10,000 times worse. If you think about it, what would have happened if the blasphemer accepted the ruling? I think he could have served as a model of true, indomitable faith. I think he could have been a hero. He would have been known as someone who forfeited everything for God. He could have been the one who is this exemplar, is this paradigm of accepting your lot in life and not questioning God. Listen, he, he had legitimate gripes. 
why would he need to suffer due to the sins of his biological parents? That's a question that's a very hard one for us to ask. But what would have been his legacy if he didn't ask that question, if he accepted it? He would have been the model of accepting his own fate as determined by God. His animal died in the plague of pestilence, and he converted nonetheless. His faith in God exceeded 80% of the actual Jews. And had he accepted this ruling and returned to his place and swallowed his pride and bend his head in submission to God, maybe he could have encamped with the other converts with the mixed multitude, he would be the poster child of total faith, of total subjugation and submission to God. But he didn't do that. When the ruling was rendered, he gave up everything. He lost it all. And he was executed, and he ended up with nothing but infamy and ignominy, eternal shame and disgrace. The blasphemer could not decouple himself from the momentum of his disappointment, and it just snowballed into catastrophe. If I can't have it all, if I cannot encamp with the Danites, let's burn it all down. This is the way of the Eight Sahara, as they just tell us. He starts off and tries to get a small advantage, a small concession. Let's get some momentum heading in the way of the Eight Sahara. And once that starts, it's really hard to stop the bleeding. And he can turn a small advantage into a devastating route. I think if someone ever had a diet and then just one day you cheat, one day you cheat and it turns into a binge, you just start swimming in a bathtub full of carbs. Or God forbid if someone loses money, make a poor investment, do something bad with their finances. There's a risk of losing it all. The great investors take more pride in cutting their losses, try to get out of a bad trade, than in executing a good one. And the reason why is because to manage your losses, to stop digging the hole that you're in, to cut your losses, to stop the bleeding, it's very hard. Because all the momentum of your life is pulling you in that direction. You marvel at the Holocaust survivors who were able to rebuild their lives after the war. I always think about my grandparents, you know, my four grandparents and my wife's four grandparents, all eight of them were all Holocaust survivors. And all of them lost relatives in the war. Think about how easy it would be to just give up. Think about the questions that you would have against God, the legitimate questions that you would have against him, how unfair it was, how unfair it is. 
and how broken you are in spirit and, and body and how your spiritual life is in tatters and your physical life is in tatters. You have nothing, nothing. No one wants you. How easy is it to just give up? And what did they do? They rebuilt. Think about what unimaginable, indomitable strength that requires when the momentum is heading with such blazing speed in one direction to stop the bleeding, to turn around, and to start moving the other direction, to start from the absolute bottom and to rebuild. I had a friend who was becoming more religious and he decided that he's going to observe Rosh Hashanah. He's going to follow all the rules, all the details of the laws to refrain from all sorts of work that's prohibited on festivals and, and Shabbos. And after the festival, I asked him, well, how would it go? So he said, well, I made a mistake and I made a blunder and I violated the festival. And once I violated, that's it. I just stopped the rest of the time. And the, the second day was just total, regular, ordinary day. That is the modus operandi of the Sahara. Make one mistake, one small mistake, and then just give up. One of the reasons why I'm so terrified of missing a Parsha podcast, for those of you who are still counting, we are a few months away from reaching three years, the third anniversary of not missing a single week having a new Parsha podcast episode. Of course, this is all with the help of the Almighty. And with your dedicated listenership and support, and of course it's nice to come to the cozy studio at the Torch Center, but I feel like if I miss a week, all that positive momentum will fizzle out. And it'll be really hard to make it the next week. If it's hard to do it every one week, It'll be three times as hard to get back on schedule. It's really hard when you have a loss to cut your losses, to stop the bleeding, to regroup, and to start again. All of us have bad days. But there's a real risk of a bad day derailing and leading to another bad day and a bad week and a bad month before you know it, you're in real trouble. There is a risk when someone loses a relative. The Torah has to warn us. Don't engage in self-destructive behavior. When you are in a state of grief, there is a risk for that. And we have the second example of this phenomenon at the end of the parsha. The blasphemer was disappointed. He was distraught. And he perpetuated it. He, in a very illogical way, acted in a way that continued the bad trend. Now, as is true with everything, there's a flip side. Negative momentum is very harmful, very dangerous, very hard to extricate yourself from. But there's also positive momentum. Just as it is hard to stop a runaway train heading in the wrong direction, Positive momentum works wonders as well. That snowball can barrel its way into heaven as well. 
Successes can build upon each other. Every mitzvah that you do drags a second mitzvah in its wake. And before you know it, you're off and running. I think of momentum as like a, it's like a rocket. If you ever watch the launching of a rocket, it elevates really slowly. And you don't imagine that anything going that slowly can make it into space. But that momentum is equally hard to stop. And just a little bit of propulsion, a little bit of liftoff, before you know it, you're in space. This is a very powerful principle. Momentum is very hard to stop in both directions. The snowball can lead to catastrophe. It can also lead to wonderful, great places. This is why there's such an emphasis on on making the start good, on getting some positive momentum, racking up a few wins, heading in the right direction, even if it's small. Even if you look at the successes and it doesn't seem to be so impressive, it all starts with something small. Anyone who wrote a great work, a great book, you have to write one word first. You have to have one idea first before you could have uh, prolific ideas. got to start somewhere. And every success makes the next success easier. And the momentum builds upon itself. If you ever compare yourself to someone who did great things, I always look at my grandfather's writings, the voluminous output that he did, the amount of manuscripts that he left, the amount of different areas of our philosophy of the Torah that he really, really worked through. And it could be a bit depressing because his output and his accomplishments are just so vast, so voluminous. You don't feel like you can match up to that. And you know what? Most of us can't. Certainly, I can't compared to him. But it it all starts with something. And if you realize that it, it compounds, and a small success today is going to be amplified, a small little lift off off the launch pad, that is an incredible bit of momentum You realize that, and it makes those accomplishments more readily achievable by small people like us. In our parsha, we have the description of the showbreads. And there's a very interesting verse, chapter 24, verse 5. The verse tells us that you should take flour and bake it into 12 loaves. So this is the showbreads, 12 loaves. And of course, you bake the loaves with flour. So the verse tells us you have to take the flour and bake the loaves. Now, what would be if the verse just said, bake 12 loaves? You would know that you have to take the flour. So the commentaries ask the question, wait a minute, why is there the extra two words? You should take the flour why is that feature in the verse? And the Nitziv 
says something very powerful. And this is a very much related idea. When you want to do a mitzvah, you want to have the successes to be in a very early stage. And if you take the flower, it's not yet the mitzvah. There's no mitzvah of taking flower. But if you start and you have a success, you take the flower and you have the right intentions to say, I want to fulfill the mitzvah of the Almighty, that's going to add towards the cumulative holiness of the whole enterprise. Conversely, if you start off a process and things are not really where they're supposed to be, it's going to end up poorly. There's an incredible story in the Talmud, in the book of Bamatsiya, page 85b. It talks about a time where there was a dearth of education options for young children. And the great Rabbi Chia, he planted flax. Now, why would the solution to a lack of education be to plant flax? Well, he needed a net because he was going to catch a deer and use the hide of the deer to write a Torah scroll. So the first thing he did is to plant the flax and to use that to make a net, to use that to catch the deer, to use that to process the deer into hides, into parchment, and through that to write upon the parchment the words of the Torah. Now, wouldn't it be more efficient to just buy the net or just buy the hides? There's this idea, again, it's a similar idea. It's uh, not precisely the same idea, but it's related. If you want to get something started and you want it to be successful, at the very earliest stages of that initiative, it should be done with the right intentions. He didn't want any perverse intentions, any corrupt intentions in any part of this process. So even the flats that's going to be used to make the net that's going to catch the deer that we're going to use the hide to write upon it the words of the Torah, he wanted to plant it. So it's done with the right motivations. The Gona Vilna used to say that if you really want to build a synagogue that everyone prays with devotion and no one's thinking about their stocks or their sports or the politics, and no one's chatting about other things. Everyone is really devoted in prayer to God. Make sure that when you make the axe that you're going to use to chop down the tree, that you're going to use to build the synagogue, that axe should be made with proper righteous motivations. This is an idea of the power, really, of small things. At the very beginning of a, again, that's why the idea is not exactly the same idea. This is talking more about the beginning and the importance of the beginning being, even if it's tangentially related to the result, that should be noble, that should be righteous. But in a related way, this is our subject. Momentum is an almost unstoppable force. When it is heading in the wrong direction, it is an existential danger. Even though what's happening right now is not dangerous, but this will lead, potentially, of course you could overcome it, 
But things can go off the rails very fast. The failures and the losses, the disappointments, will beget other losses and other failures and other disappointments. Just as a mitzvah drags in its weight another mitzvah, a sin breeds another sin in its wake. And it takes preternatural strength to stop the snowball, the train, the rocket. But when things are trending in the right direction, that too is self-reinforcing. Of course, you still have to expend effort to advance it. But once you have the momentum, that trend, it's much easier to do it. And that's why small wins are so critical. If we could just get some positive lift off, just an inch off the ground, just a small step in the right direction, we could be put on a trajectory that ends up in heaven. And of course, that is where we all want to end up. Okay, we end off the Parsha podcast with a question. And the question will also focus on the narrative of the blasphemer. If you read it in chapter 24, you'll notice something is a bit odd. So it starts off 24, verse 10. The man who's the son of the Israelite woman and the Egyptian man, and he's having a scuffle in the camp, and he blasphemes and he curses. And they didn't know what to do with him, and they placed him in a holding cell, and Moshe consults with God. And God tells Moshe, take him out and execute him. So his verdict is sealed in verse 14. Now he's going to get executed. That is true. But the execution does not happen until verse 23. What do you have in between? You have all these laws. So first, you have the law, not to curse God. Okay, that's germane. Because he cursed God, he blasphemed. So it makes sense why it would be placed here. And then we have the law of a murderer. And then we have the law of someone who damages someone else's property. And then we have the law of someone who assaults, who physically damages someone else. And finally, in verse 23, the final verse of the Parsha, they actually execute the blasphemer. But it raises the question, why is there an interlude? Why do we have all these laws in between the verdict being conveyed and the execution, quite literally, of the execution? So I saw an incredible idea, courtesy of the Dorash Moshe, Ramosha Feinstein, he says something very powerful, very beautiful. This is the first time in history where a Jewish court is going to execute someone. And why are they doing it? They're doing it because that's what God wants. So they're fulfilling the will of God. Before you execute someone, before you fulfill the will of God in punishing someone, you have to realize the severity of a human life in the eyes of God. And the Torah tells us, before you execute him, 
you should know that if you kill someone who's innocent, that's capital punishment. Don't think that you're executing someone because, wow, what difference does it make? You know, we have lots and lots of replacements. You know, you read about some of the stories during the uh, Revolutionary War. You'd get Washington upset, you're hanging. They were much more much more easy to, to hang people. Don't think that the reason why we're killing this guy is because it doesn't matter. No, if you kill someone, it's a capital offense. Not only that, you can't even damage their property. You can't even physically hurt them. Only if you truly accept and absorb and understand the gravity of how the Torah treats someone else. They could be a convert. They could be a sinner. It doesn't matter. You have to really appreciate that a foundational principle of the Torah is you have to love him as you love yourself. He doesn't mention this, but the Talmud actually says one of the reasons why a person is executed in a given way, I'll spare you the details, is because you have to love your fellow as yourself. The Talmud tells us that the mitzvah to love your fellow as yourself applies even to a murderer who committed a crime that they get executed for. Only if you truly appreciate that, you understand the severity that the Torah places upon human life. Not just that, your your friend's property and the physical harm of your friend. That must be the prerequisite, you have to know that. Don't execute someone because you don't like them. And because what difference does it make if they live or die? And who cares about them? No, no, you got to care about them, about their body, not to injure it, not to damage it, and even their property, and certainly their life. Don't think that the reason why this person is being executed is because you hate him and they're not worthy of anything positive. Actually, no, you have to love your fellow as yourself. Applies also to such a person. I will add, there is a famous dictum, an aphorism, that we say, Chayav Adam Lomar, a person is obligated to say, The world was created for me. We mentioned this many times here on the Parsha podcast. A person is obligated to say the whole world is created for me. When do we say that? Where does that appear in the literature? That appears when a Jewish court is governing, is adjudicating capital crime, and we warn the witnesses. We're intimidating them. We're cross-examining them. We're interrogating them. And we're telling them, this person that you are giving testimony that they have to be executed, you have to know that the entire world was created for them. And if you kill one person, it's like you've destroyed the whole world. And if you save one person, it's like you've saved the whole world. That is where that saying originates. And therefore, before someone is executed, we're told what we need to know. You have to know that their life is precious, their life is valuable, 
And you have to love them. And you have to make sure not to injure them or harm them. But actually, the best thing for them, the best thing for them, because you love them, you execute them. That is in their self-interest. That is the way that they can perhaps atone for some of their crimes. How's that for a twist? The reason why you're killing them is because you love them. And this is how the Almighty positions them that they can maybe make some amends, some rectification for what they did. What an incredible idea. And the Parsha ends, in fact, that this blasphemer was executed. I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this Parsha podcast from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. My name is Yaakov Wolby. I have lots of other podcasts. Listen to them. Support the great work of Torch. Our website is torchweb.org. Send me an email with your questions, your comments, and your feedback. RabbiWalby at gmail.com. And have a wonderful rest of your day. A splendid, terrific rest of your week. A truly elevated, sensational Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, with the unending help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week and conclude the book of Leviticus. It's been a wild ride. I've enjoyed every second of it. And please, God, we will meet again next week.